Welcome to the Blind Jesus Freak Podcast, a podcast that focuses on living a Christ-centered life with a visual impairment. Even if you don't have a visual impairment, stick around. You might just be blessed by how the blind look at God's Word. Yeah, the pun is totally intended. And now, here's your host, the Blind Jesus Freak himself, Mike Calvo. Welcome, welcome, and welcome once again to the Blind Jesus Freak Podcast. I can't believe it, I made it. I know I sound stuffy, but hey, I dragged my old bones here anyhow. You know, the flu went away and it came back. But it didn't come back. I just got like this cold thing going on. So if I sound a little stuffy, hey, that's all it is. But I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I have Jamie Pauls with me tonight. Hey, Jamie. Hey, it's good to be here again. Now, welcome back. Thank you. Did you tell Lisa she couldn't come in tonight? I did not tell her that. She, uh, I guess, is just a smidge under the weather, so we'll definitely keep her in prayer, most definitely. Yeah, you, you were saying something about she was having food and it didn't agree with her. Well, she shouldn't be yeah. arguing with food, you know? That's you, exactly really. right. Don't be she doing that. arguing, and that's what happens when you argue with food. <laughs> Well, we've we've had some great responses to our Promises podcast last week. It was awesome. Derek did a great job at making it coherent. We did have some technical issues with breakup and things like that, but we did pretty good. And uh, we want to thank everybody for their comments and uh, for their emails. And tonight, we have a guest. We've dragged someone else, another Jesus freak, into the podcast with us, and his name is John Dietrich, and he comes where, well, you know, it depends on who you talk to, but a lot of freaks come from California, John, so <laughs> that's a Jesus right. freak, a lot of, being lot a of Jesus them. freak in California, you're in a good place, man. That might have even been where the phrase originated. Who knows? It might have been, but welcome to the Blind Jesus Freak podcast. Thank you. It's great to be able to be here and share this with you. Yeah, what part of California are you in? We're located in a little village called Arnold, California, which is up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. We're about 4,000 feet high, kind of in the middle of the state. If you were to go to Sacramento and then go south, you'd hit Stockton. And then if you go east of there, you go up the mountain a whole bunch of miles and uh, you end up here in Arnold we are. And we're kind of in the middle of the mountain. The thing goes up to about 8,000 feet. Goodness. What is the climate like there? Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it dry? Is it humid? In the winter, it's uh, cold and snowy. And in the summer, it's just warm, pleasant. It's pretty dry as far as humidity is concerned. But when it rains, it rains. When it snows, it snows. There's a lot of thunder and lightning that happens up here. And we have a lot of big trees up here. Cedar trees, redwood trees, lots and lots of pine trees. And so the homes are kind of in the middle of the forest is sort of what it is. So it's like a cabin type of situation? You live in a cabin? A lot of homes are cabins. Ours is more of a regular house. It's a one-story house that sort of spreads out a little bit. We got four bedrooms and a living room and a family room and all that sort of good stuff. But a lot of the houses are little A-frame cabins or two-story little a-frame cabins with roofs that you could fall off of. If you were to get up on the roof, you'd slide right off. So what do you do for transportation? Imagine everything is kind of a ways away, it sounds like. Yes, it is. Uh, In fact, that's one of the hard things about living up here is that uh, the transportation, everything's spread out. So the nearest hospital is 45 minutes away. Doctors maybe 20, 25 minutes away. The nearest big town is like an hour and a half away. So uh, 
even the neighborhoods are spread out. So if people want to get together, they have to drive 15, 20, 30 minutes to wherever it is they want to go, pretty much. Well, you've got broadband, so I see that, uh, and it yes, sounds like a really good do. connection, so that's And cool. I'm delighted that that's there. I would hate to not have broadband. Well, if I didn't have broadband, I might not be able to do this. So, well, no, yeah. for sure, for sure, unless you could shout real loud. <laughs> well, I'll try that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'll so so tell us, so you're a pastor right. and a church, and it's called Big Trees Church. Well, it's a kind of, mm-hmm. I guess it's because you got big trees, cedars, and we all do. that good it's stuff. Big, big Trees Community Bible Church. We've been up here 26 years, and uh, we came here with uh, four kids, and uh, another little one was born about a year and a half after we got here. So we have five all together. Wow. Um, and my wife's name is Lori. We've been married almost 44 years. We'll be 44 years in June. That's awesome. So you're only, you got married when you were 12? <laughs> no, 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 I'll be 67 in July. So I was like really? 22 when I got married. Yeah. That's awesome. And and how did you meet Lori? Well, we met in high school. We were seniors in high school and I was invited to go to a banquet and sing and talk about Jesus to the teenagers there. And I took my guitar and I was going to, you know, sing and give my testimony and the guy that brought me put me down next to Lori and her boyfriend, and uh, we were having dinner, and the boyfriend said almost nothing. I mean, he was the most quiet guy I've ever known in my life. He said, hi, and that was about it. But Lori and I started talking, and we just couldn't stop. I don't even remember what we ate almost, because we had such a fabulous time talking. And, uh, you know, that was sort of where I met her, and then um, we ended up going back to that church because they had a youth choir. And uh, she sort of connived, I think, with some of the other guys in the youth group. She said, why don't you invite him to come and sing with us and stuff? So I started coming and singing with him pretty soon. In order to get from the practice place where we were singing to the place where the food was, of course, I needed help to get there. And so this girl kept coming and taking my hand and helping me to go where the sandwiches were and all that stuff. Oh, you poor blind guy. Oh, yes. Poor you. Oh, terrible. You know, and so one of those times after having our supper, she just kind of didn't let go of my hand, and there we were. Oh, that's And you gained about 15 pounds, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> <dessert and> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, it was after I got married that I started gaining pounds. I understand that. Uh, I, I, understand I tell people when works. you put on the ring, man, you, you know, you, you get 10 pounds with that ring yes, around you your do. finger and your waist. You know, that's right. <laughs> the ring, that's right. my ring doesn't come off anymore. It's just kind of stuck on my hand. You know, I'm branded. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Let me see. Oh, I just got mine off. It took a little put work. Put that back on, dude. You might die. It, it's on, it's on, it's on. <laughs> there you go. Okay, okay. Yes. That was good. That was close. That was close, John. Yes. That was close. I know. I was in danger for about two seconds there. You were. You were. And she would have known, too. I know. Well, she's out in the family room watching the Giants game, so she's not watching. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, but they have that mom hearing and stuff. That, yeah, You know. that's true. So after you do your teaching tonight, I really want to kind of come back and talk a little bit about, you know, what it's like to be a pastor and your congregation and all that fun stuff and how you got into the ministry to begin with and all that stuff. But you do have a word to share with us tonight. I and, do, uh, I do. You know, we do want to give that first and foremost attention here. 
So I, I want to just kind of sit back and listen, and then Jamie and I will come back, and we're going to just grill you with you know tons of questions. You know, we're going to turn on the bright light and take yes. out the rubber hose, and well, that's you know, right. You get you can shine that you bright get... light into my eyes all you want to, but I won't see it. <laughs> we'll blind you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you will. Uh, so good. do this. All right, I'll do this. Hey, thanks, Mike. All right. Uh, let me just uh, lead us in a word of prayer for a second, and then we'll uh, jump into our Bible passage. Father, we pray that you will open our ears so we can behold wondrous things out of your word. We thank you that the Spirit who wrote it is a Spirit who helps us understand it. So we pray for the Holy Spirit's ministry as we spend this time together. We pray you'll touch every single person that's listening to what you have to say tonight for us, or tonight, or whenever they're listening anyway. Thank you, Lord. We rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 12 and moving all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And it's one of my favorite passages in the Word, primarily because it deals with the topic of where do you get your competence? Where do you get your adequacy? I think all of us want to be competent. We want to be confident. As blind people, we like to try to do, if we can, is to learn how to do things, to be adequate, to face situations and and have ways of dealing with them, ways of walking to places or ways of getting things done around the house or at work, having the equipment necessary to work with and all of that. And spiritually, the Lord has given us in the scriptures various keys to being competent, being adequate, being sufficient. Because when you look in the scriptures and you see all of the things that are said there about what God wants us to do and the righteous life that he wants us to have, and avoiding evil and showing his love and his compassion and all of that, sometimes it gets a little overwhelming to the point where you go, well, do I have to be this bionic person? And I've thought that sometimes it's like, I have to be this bionic man and husband and father and grandfather and pastor and person. And uh, when it gets overwhelming, and a lot of times life does for us, whether we're Christians or not, really whether a person can see or not, life is just big. It's huge. And some days you wake up in the morning and you just want to say, Lord, redeal. And it's during those times when a passage like this is really helpful. And so I remind myself of this fairly often. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's describing a time in his life where he had a door of ministry open for him, but he wasn't able to take advantage of it. And he begins in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. He says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so... I said goodbye to them, and I went on to Macedonia. Now, Paul's in these cities around what we call Greece today. He's in this city called Troas, and he says here, The Lord opened up a door for ministry for me. I was there. He opened up a door to preach the gospel and to love people, to make disciples, to give out the word, to edify the the believers that are there. But he says, even though this door was open, Titus wasn't there, and he calls him his brother, of course, because he's in Christ. He says, I didn't find Titus there. And he says, I had no peace of mind because Titus wasn't there. Now, this guy Titus had been sent by Paul back to the city of Corinth to see how the church was doing, and Paul was very concerned about them. He'd written them a letter earlier, and uh, 
most of First Corinthians is a letter of correction because the Corinthian church had a lot of problems and Paul was writing to them and sharing with them what the Lord wanted them to do and how they needed to have respect for God and respect for his word and so on. And so he expected Titus to come back and say, hey, Paul, the Corinthians are doing fine or the Corinthians aren't doing fine or whatever is going on. But he said, Titus never showed up. And here I am in this place called Troas. And he says, I can't do the ministry. My mind is just anxious and concerned. And so this verse here says, I said goodbye to these people. And I went on to Macedonia because he said, well, maybe Titus is over there. And you think, well, Paul, aren't you the guy who wrote, hey, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And Paul would say, yep, I wrote that. But in this particular case, I could not do it. And now there's another point, and that is that about four years later from this place, in, uh, Paul wrote Philippians. So maybe, you know, he learned a little bit, just like we do from time to time about it. But nevertheless, he said, I was so disturbed in my mind, I could not rest. So I had to leave. And you would think he would go on from here in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2 to say, and I regret what happened, and I'm sorry about it, and I wish the ministry had worked out, but it didn't, and uh, so forth. He doesn't. He switches gears here. And he starts talking about some wonderful things that he's confident about, and they all have to do with who God is and what God does. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 2, he says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ Jesus, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So he says, in spite of the fact that I failed, that I was not able to do what I was supposed to do. He says, thanks be to God that God leads us in triumph and he can take even that and bring something good out of it. Now that's really encouraging because first of all, Paul says, I'm still thankful to God even though I was not able to do what God had sent me to do in that city. He says, God's going to take even that and use it for something good. And the Bible tells us that, of course, in Romans 8, 28, that in everything, God is working for the good to those that are called by him according to his purpose and those that love God. And so Paul says, I know in spite of the fact that I didn't do what I was called there to do, God's leading me in this triumphal procession in Christ Jesus, and he's going to use it. He also says here that God spreads through us Everywhere we go, the fragrance of the knowledge of him, that is, of Jesus. In verse 15, he says, For we are, to God, the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. I love that, too, because he says, Not only am I thankful, and not only am I convinced that God is bringing victory even in places where we completely drop the ball. But he says, I'm also confident that because of the life of Christ that lives inside, we are an aroma. We're a fragrance. And a lot of us like to think about things that we smell, that we love. You love to wake up in the morning and the bacon is cooking and you say, ah, I don't know what else this day holds, but it holds breakfast. Or maybe you're out somewhere and some woman walks in the room and she has this marvelous perfume and you just want to shout out, what is that perfume you're wearing? One of the things that Lori and I used to do in our early dating life is we'd go shopping for perfume and I would buy her some perfume and we'd test them out. And as soon as I found one that I liked, then I would say, oh, I'm going to buy that for you. So here he says, we are 
the fragrance of Christ. We are an aroma of Christ. And what that means is as we're around people, they see Jesus working through us because his life is in a Christian. And so there's the love of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the concern of Christ. There's also the toughness of Christ as we give out the message and encouraging people to repent of their sins and believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and let God change their lives. And so there's an aroma. And people actually in Acts chapter 11 called people that were part of the church there Christians. And it means little Christs, people who everywhere they go, they remind you of Jesus. And Paul says, this is another thing we're confident of, that we are this aroma. In verse 16, he talks about two kinds of people. He says there are people that are perishing and people who are receiving life. And he says, we are the aroma of Christ, but in one case, people smell the aroma and it smells like death. They hear about sin, they hear about repentance, they hear about God, they hear about the need that they have to bow before Jesus as Lord, and they say, no, this smells like death, I don't want it, I don't need it, forget it. Others smell the fragrance of life, and they believe on Christ and are born again, and they have eternal life given to them, and the very life of Christ is imparted to them, and then they smell just like Jesus also. All right, at the end of the verse 16 then, he asks a question, which I'm not actually going to answer for a few minutes. He says, who is sufficient to such a task? Who is equal to such a task? Who is sufficient for that kind of a ministry? See, Paul's already said, in spite of my failure, I'm thankful that God can take it and use it. And not only that, but I'm victorious in Christ. And not only that, but I'm an aroma of Christ. And he says, who's equal to such statements as these? He's going to talk about that in a minute. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 2, he keeps talking about his ministry, and we'll explain why he's doing this in a minute. He says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. He says, we're not hucksters of the word of God. In Paul's day, there were all kinds of people that were trying to make a whole bunch of money by talking about religious stuff. People that didn't believe in Jesus yet, perhaps they were making money by pushing religion that was based on idolatry, idol worship. There were others that actually claimed to believe in God, but they were false apostles. And they would give out the word, but they had their hand out all the time saying, give me money. Now that you've been blessed, you owe me. And uh, he says, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. And then here's some more stuff about Paul's confidence here. He says, on the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God, with sincerity as men sent from God. Okay, what's he saying there? He's saying our speaking is before God. In other words, we're speaking in the sight of God. We're accountable. God's watching over us, protecting us. He's caring for us. He's empowering us to say what we're saying. God doesn't overlook us. He oversees us. He watches over us. And so he says, instead of being peddlers of God's word, we speak in the sight of God with sincerity. We're for real. And so he's saying, in the church community, out of the church community, in the marketplace, in our homes, wherever it is we are, we're for real. We're sincere. This is a cool word, actually. It means we're without wax. The uh, people that would make clay pots and coffee mugs, teapots, various vessels, would make them out of clay, and they'd fire the clay, and then put the glaze over the finished pot after it was fired and cured and all of that kind of thing. Once in a while, there'd be a crack in the pot. And so if they wanted to cheat, they'd put a little bit of wax in there 
just so it looked good and everything, and then cover it up and uh, put the glaze on there, and you wouldn't know it. And you'd buy this pot thinking you could take it home and use it, and then the first time you used it, you would fill it with liquid, and it would all of a sudden leak out the side or out the bottom, or it would be cracked. And Paul said, we're not like that. We are without wax. We're sincere. We're for real. What you see is what you get. We're consistent. And he says, we're men sent from God. So the question we end up with here is, why is he saying all this stuff? He first of all admitted his failures, and then he goes on to say, I don't care. It's fine. It's no problem, because I'm thankful to God, because he's always going to lead us in triumph. We are victorious in Christ. Not only that, but we are an aroma of Christ toward God. And we're sincere. We're moving in the sight of God. We're doing our ministry. And you think, well, what in the world are you doing? Why are you talking about all this stuff? Well, it's because there were a bunch of people that were going to the Corinthians saying, you know, Paul's really not all that important as a minister. He wasn't even one of the original guys. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul kind of hits this thing head on. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He's saying, hey, what's the deal here? Do you need to get a letter from Peter or John or one of the other apostles, Andrew, that validates that I'm a worthwhile person or that my ministry is really worthwhile? He says, am I just bragging about myself and my ministry? And then he says in verse 2, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. You know what he's saying? I love this. He's saying, Corinthians, you don't need a letter from the original apostles, or you don't need a a letter from even one of your own church members telling you that our ministry is valid. Just look at your lives. Look at how God has changed your heart. He says, you're our letter written in our hearts. And he's saying, has God changed your life? Has God made a difference in your life at all? There's an interesting place in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he talks about a whole bunch of kinds of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, people who are guilty of all kinds of things that are offensive to God. And he says, don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists a whole bunch of people. He says, don't be deceived. And he said, sexually immoral, swindlers, extortioners, people that worship idols, adulterers. He talks about all kinds of different things that people do that are sort of their lifestyle. Thieves, greedy people, drunkards, slanderers. Ouch, that one hurt. He says, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's saying to the Corinthians is, look at your lives and look at what they used to be before we showed up. He spent a year and a half there in Corinth ministering to the church. He says, remember what you were? He could name particular names. He says, "Uh, hey, Penelope, don't you remember? You were a prostitute. You were selling your self for income and jesus changed your life you're not doing that anymore your whole life is different and susie remember how you used to slander people talk about people behind their back and uh spread gossip think about how god has changed your heart he says to dan remember you were known as the drunk of the town 
Everybody knew that alcohol was enslaving you and keeping you down. And when you bowed before Jesus as Lord, your sins were forgiven and your heart was cleansed. And God brought you out of that. And you're not the same anymore. God delivered you out of that. And so he just talks about that. And in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, that is what some of you were. So I love this because he says all kinds of people as they are in the natural will not inherit the kingdom of God. But once a person bows before Jesus as Lord and repents of his sins and the sins are forgiven and God gives you new life, then what we say is that's who we were. We're not that anymore. Dan would say, I used to be known as Dan the drunk. (laughs) Now I'm Dan the disciple. And uh, all the others could say the same thing. So Paul says, you don't need letters from anybody. Your own personal lives testify to the value of our ministry. And he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, which means you were set apart or made holy. You were justified, which means God the judge declared you to be righteous and gave you a full pardon. Your sins are forgiven. And this was all done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So Paul says, are you kidding? Letters, save your stamps, save your papyrus. In our day, we'd say, don't bother writing the email. You don't need letters. You guys are our letter. Your lives have really changed. And he says, these changes have been made in the heart. It's not letters with ink, which either stays or disappears. I'm not quite sure how all that works. But the Spirit of the living God is the one who made the changes. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 16, I deliberately left out part of a verse. And I want to address that now because Paul said, who is equal to such a task? Okay, assuming, he says, we're thankful to God, we're victorious in Christ, we are an aroma of Christ toward God, we're sincere, we know we're ministering in the sight of God, and we know that people's lives have been changed by Christ. And Paul says, who's equal to such a task? What school do you go to? What courses can you take? What degrees can you get in order to be able to be this kind of a person? And if we try on our own to live like that, we know what happens. If I were to say, hey, no matter what happens in your life, always be thankful. And don't forget you're always a winner. And don't forget that wherever you go, you smell like Christ. You got to represent Jesus. And don't forget that every time you go anywhere, you're doing it in the sight of God and you got to be sincere. And you're going to make an impact on people's lives and their hearts are going to change. And you better do it. Be that bionic Christian. So he says, who is equal to such a task? In verse 4 of chapter 3 here, he says, well, such confidence as this is ours, Christ, before God. Why I can say all of this stuff about the ministry and the people's lives and the thankfulness, even when there's been failure or difficulty, is because... Our trust is in Christ. Verse 5, he says, Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. I absolutely love that. He says, We're not saying that the reason all of this stuff has happened and the reason we can look at life like this is because we're hot stuff. Paul could have said, If I want to put confidence in my humanity and in my, as a man, I got all kinds of credentials. In Philippians 3, he talks about that. He says, I've got all kinds of confidence that I could put 
in my old self-life, my flesh. But in chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, I consider that to be rubbish. It's just garbage. Throw it away. He just says, I want to be found in Christ, not having my righteousness of my own, but having a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ. So Paul says, this is the confidence that we have, not we're competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves. Our competency comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. And he says, this covenant is not of the letter, but it's of the spirit. The letter of the law of God makes demands, but it gives no power to keep the demands of the law. But the spirit, who is the Holy Spirit, and he's born in every one who is a believer, the spirit is the one who gives power. And it's the life of Jesus Christ in us that gives us power to meet the demands the Word of God makes. The Spirit gives life. So he says, where does our competence come? Our competence comes from God. He's the one that has made us competent, able, servants of the new covenant. And it's the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we walk with God. So as I think about this whole issue of adequacy and competence and how we all want to be able, want to be able to do as much as we can do and to learn as much as we can learn and uh, to live our lives competently in the spiritual world. And I think really it translates into the physical world also. There's so many instances where the Spirit of God would say to us, don't rest in your self-confidence. Don't rest in what you can do. Don't rest in what you know. Don't bank on, even spiritually, how much Bible we know or how many tapes, well, people don't listen to tapes, how many CDs we've heard, how many messages we've heard, how long we believers. Every minute of every day, our sufficiency, our competence, our ability to keep on and to do what needs to be done day by day by day comes from the Spirit of God. And so we don't bank on all the other things. Well, then what do you do with the other things? Does that mean I throw out my abilities? Does that mean I throw out my capacities? Does that mean I don't uh, put any effort in? Not at all. I don't bank on that. If we do anything, we put forth effort. We act. We do things. We learn things. We learn new competencies that we've never had before, but we don't bank on those. What we bank on is the ability of the Holy Spirit to work through us so that God takes who we are and where we are and who we're with and makes an impact for Jesus Christ through us as we live out our lives minute by minute by minute. So I just want to encourage every single one of you that's listening. If you're a believer, God desires that you feed your life with him and that you allow him to live his life in you day by day by day. And don't bank on your own native abilities or human abilities. Bank on the work of the Spirit in your life and then say, God, all of these abilities come from you anyway. They're not mine. I don't have anything I didn't receive, so therefore I offer it all up to you to do with as you wish. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, let me just say there's going to come a time when your life here on earth is finished, and there's going to be a competency that you're not going to have because you will stand before God, and he's going to ask you, what gives you the competence, what gives you the confidence to live with me ever? And Unless you've bowed your heart before Jesus Christ as Lord, you won't have any competence. You won't have any confidence to be there. You could say, well, I'm going to depend on all the good things that I do. God says, that's not going to do it. What we need to do is depend upon all the good things God does. So, to transfer kingdoms from darkness to light, 
during our lifetime here on this earth where we make the decision to believe on his Lord, to understand that God loves us, but that our sins separate us from God and that God will forgive our sins and cleanse our hearts and give us new life if we trust in him. And that is where the life begins because eternal life doesn't begin when we're transferred from earth to heaven. Eternal life begins the moment that you believe on Jesus Christ as Lord. You start your eternal life on earth and then when you get transferred, it just keeps on going. But once it starts on earth, then God says, okay, there's this other principle. Now that you've believed on me as Lord, let me live my life through you. Don't go back to the old life and depend on what you were. So he would say to all these people in Corinth, don't go back to being Penelope the prostitute or Dan the drunkard or Susie the slanderer. You're a new person now. Let Christ live his life out through you and be that fragrance of Christ to the people around you. And that's pretty much what I had in mind to share with y'all. Amen. Amen. What an awesome message and one that truly, that with me, strikes to the heart uh, where I've been uh, so many times challenged in my life, uh, as I've shared here before, with uh, the things that God has called me to do, where God has opened up a door and you're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to go through that door or not, you know? And you're scared, and it is. And, you know, fear, I tell people, fear is false evidence appearing real, you know, and uh, it takes just as much effort to fear as it does to believe. And uh, fear is just doubt. And really, fear comes because we're afraid we're not going to be able to do it. And if we just come to the conclusion that, hey, we're not, (laughs) you know, that's right. That's all good. I can't, you know, Lord, you said it right, Jesus. Without you, I can do nothing. I can't even put on my shirt right in the morning without Jesus. So (laughs) it's an important thing to me to do that and to be able to count on him. Very encouraging word. I agree. I really, as I was listening and thinking, the things that struck me were, you know, not banking on my own abilities. I think sometimes when people have talent, if you are a musician, if you are a gifted speaker, it's if you're not careful, you can get um, cocky, you can get overconfident and think that's, that you are really doing something. And in fact, you're doing nothing. And more yeah. times than not, you're in the way of what God wants to do. You know, if I'm going to give out the message or sing a song or do any kind of ministry stuff, I know I'm dead meat when I think, ah, no problem. Got this one. Yep. And the Lord lets the wheels fall off whenever <laughs> he I sure do does. That. Oh, isn't it great, though? Yeah. I find it interesting that he said that the Holy Spirit opened up a door for him and he basically didn't do it. Yeah. You know, so I wonder how many times we go through life and there is a door open there and fear doesn't allow us to go through it or the circumstances. I mean, especially as a blind person, for example, you'll go in somewhere and this has happened to me before, at least when I was younger, you know, you go in and you're prepared to present yourself, you're prepared to discuss, you know, oh, I've accomplished this or I've done that. I'm here to talk about the job interview or I'm here to talk about my academics, you know, and they want to talk about how'd you tie your shoes this morning, you know, and totally throw off your game, man. It's like, man, you know, and then you get flustered because you got your gig all worked up already and then they throw you off. Sure. And instead of, you know, just kind of flowing with it or making it a, a moment where you can say, yeah, you know, well, I got dressed in the morning because, you know, I picked out my clothes and this and that. And by the way, speaking of getting dressed, you know, I get dressed to go to work every day. And work is just something, <laughs> you know, getting back on <laughs> That's track. Why I'm but instead here. we get yeah. flustered. Yeah. yeah. We get flustered because if 
we approach a person who's nervous about us, that we get nervous about them being nervous. And then, you know, and it just kind of creates this vicious circle. So it really does come to dying to self and really allowing God to do his work in us and through us. Yeah, you almost have to not care about the outcome. You just say, okay, Lord, it's you and me. Here we go. Let's do it. I'm dependent on you and whatever it is, it is. And you throw the agenda out the window and say, Lord, I'm here for your agenda, not mine. And you run with it. And man, there's all kinds of surprises when that happens. Well, it's fun when, uh, as a blind person, I've spoken at times and friends have said, Mikey, you should have seen the look on that person's face as you were saying. I'm like, well, maybe I'm lucky I didn't because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would have stopped. So maybe yeah. we just need to kind of walk through life that way. Just make sure we're polite and all that. But, you know, if we got a message to give, man, and, you know, Lord's laid something on your heart for you to say, give him the truth and love and whatever that truth may be and just uh, move on from there. But great message, man. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thanks for letting yeah. me come on and share with you guys. So now, John, we're going to pick your brain okay. about your life, man. I love taking tours through people's lives. So I hope you don't have anything to hide because no, no, we've all... looked in your closet. We've yes. got a couple of skeletons. I brought them here with me and I'm going <laughs> to throw them up here on the table. That's all right. I'm kidding. You know, I'm interested in finding out how did you get into mystery? And just as important to me as a parent is... You have five kids. I also have five kids. Your wife is sighted. Right. Jamie's wife is sighted as well. Throughout our conversation, I'd like to maybe even touch on some of the challenges, because I think that there are some challenges that every couple faces, not just as married, but when you're dealing with a sighted person and a blind person, the I can do this, or, oh, I can do that, or you can't do that, and I can, those kinds of things, and and how that worked out for you. But let's start back. How did you get into ministry? I mean, you, you met your wife in high school. Did you guys start dating right away? Then you went to seminary or how how did that work? We started dating still while we were seniors in high school. And uh, then I went to college to uh, be a history teacher, actually. And uh, she was also in college, different colleges, but we were dating because we still lived close enough to where we could go out. And I really was a pretty young Christian at the time, but the church that she was part of was really teaching the Word and challenging the students. And uh, we both began to grow very quickly in our faith, and everything was new, everything was exciting. There was music all over the place coming out in the late 60s, and man, I was just really excited about that. And I played guitar and sang, and so I thought, well, I could learn these songs start singing them, and I didn't know too many Christian songs when I met Lori. I think I knew maybe two or three songs that were songs or hymns. I had one song that I always sang when I water skied, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and I was desperate, man. I was water skiing and singing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, please don't let me fall, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but other than that, I didn't know much music, and I, I learned, there were all these Christian songs, so I started playing my guitar and singing, and churches would invite us to come, and I would sing, and Lori would be there with me, and That was sort of a cheap date. But uh, what started happening was I started explaining the meaning of the song from Scripture before I sang. And uh, somebody started noticing that and saying, all I want you to do is sing the song. Do you have to talk about it? And I said, well, I really want to explain to them how it connects up to the Scriptures and stuff. And the guy said, well, it sounds to me like you might be interested in learning how to study the Bible and how to teach and all that. And I said, well, I don't know. He says, okay, show up on Thursday night and uh, we'll begin to work on this. So, there was this youth director guy who began to disciple me and teach me how to study the scriptures and and how to present the word and and all of this. 
So all the time Lori and I were dating, there was kind of this double thing going on where I was singing and stuff, and then also just teaching a little bit. How old were you? I was uh, around 20, 21, somewhere in there. And uh, this was in California? This or, was in California, where, yeah. Where did you live? In San Jose, California. Awesome. And we were going to a church there. It was probably about a thousand people, and they had a youth department and music department and all kinds of different ministries were going on. So as a volunteer... I was doing some of this stuff, especially with high school kids. And I loved them, man. I just had a great time. Because when you're only 20 or 21, you're not that many years away from the kids that are 15, 16, 17. So we would sing, we would teach the word, all that kind of stuff. And this is in the 60s, right? This, this is during the whole yeah. Jesus movement thing? Yeah, it was like 66, 7, 8, 69, right in there. Talk to me about that, because that was right around, I was born in, in 67, and I've, of course, I've read a lot about that time, and out of that came Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith and the whole movement on the West Coast, and what was it like to grow up in that era? Did it send you mixed messages about Christianity? How genuine, and, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way or condescending way towards those who at the time were kind of on a spiritual growth path, but how real was the movement and how much of an excuse to just have free sex and not go to the war and, you know, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing did it end up being for folks? It was an interesting time because as we began to work with the high school kids, we found lots of people fascinated by Jesus. There was a song called Spirit in the Sky that was out in, I don't know, 69 maybe. Uh, and it was talking about, I've got a friend in Jesus, and when I die, I'm going to go up to the spirit in the sky. And uh, one of the lines in it, though, was, I've never been a sinner, I've never sinned, but I've got a friend in Jesus. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. I was trying, yeah, <laughs> and I was trying to teach and sing and help young people, and we started talking about that, and we said, okay, now is this what the Bible says? So we found we were looking at these popular songs. In other words, Jesus is Just All Right by Me. I think it was Doobies. Is that who did that thing back in the 70s? Um, that was a little later, maybe. But there was some confusion in the minds of the teenagers that we were working with because there were these popular songs, and they'd come in and say, Oh, we're so excited. Jesus is in this song. Man, listen to this. And there was the, <laughs> the Beatles one of My Sweet Lord, Hallelujah, yeah. Hallelujah. And then all of a sudden they were singing Hare Krishna, Hare Hare. And they go, oh, Wait a minute. Which God are they? Which God are they praising here? And so we ended up having to clarify a lot of things, which were confusing to people who kind of said, "Well, there's Jesus, and there's Buddha, and there's Krishna, and there's all this other, and isn't it all the same? And isn't the important thing to feel high?" There was another song, "Jesus Made Me Higher Than I've Ever Been Before." Well, is that the purpose of knowing Jesus? Is to get high? Uh, you know, is Christianity nothing but a uh, a high. What, what's the, so there was a lot of confusion. Yeah, spiritual going on. buzz type of thing. Spiritual buzz. Yeah. Now you mentioned Chuck Smith, and that was one of the most positive things that was so helpful during that time because he was down there in Southern California, standing on the beaches with the King James Bible, preaching the word, and hundreds of high school and college men and women were coming to faith in Christ through Chuck's ministry. And Calvary Chapel was just kind of beginning, and out of there came a group called Love Song. And uh, there were some other groups that came out of Calvary. But the thing was, they were producing Christian music that said something. And it wasn't confusing, and it wasn't talking about some spirit in the sky. It was talking about the Lord Jesus. And uh, so those songs were coming up. And so, again, with the teenagers, we would talk about that and say, well, let's listen to this material and see what they're saying about the Lord. And 
but we'd bring the Bible in. And what we found was there were sort of these two parallel tracks going on. There were the genuine believers that bowed before Jesus as Lord, and they were connected to the scriptures, and their lives were growing, and they were becoming disciples. And and like I say, it was the the Calvary Chapel ministry and some others that were around. And I think in San Jose, there was a Calvary Chapel, and we were part of a thing called uh, Youth for Christ. But then there was this other track that was parallel to that, which were people that were fascinated by Jesus, but he was just one more part of a existential trip that they were on. So it's kind of like, well, I tried yeah. drugs, and I tried my <laughs> girlfriend, and I tried Buddhism, and I've been to Kathmandu, and now I'm going to try Jesus, and wow, is he really a cool dude, you know? And But it wasn't connected yeah. to any content. It was just a feely sort of thing. And most of those kinds of people, they would show up for a while and meet with us and stuff, but then they'd sort of peel off because the real gospel had guts to it, it had content to yeah, it. Yeah, it know? convicts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it requires a little commitment. The, the spirit... <laughs> then change. The, 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 yeah. the spirit yeah. in the sky who is your friend doesn't agree with you when you say, I've never been a sinner, I've never sinned. He <laughs> says, hey, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it away. If your right hand offends you, throw it away. And he, he talks about how murder isn't just taking somebody's life, it's when you hate somebody. He was tough. You know, and so getting back to that aroma of Christ, there's not only the love and the compassion and all the rest of Jesus, but it's it's also this other stuff, calling a spade a spade and speaking the truth with love, but still speaking the truth. And the people that were just into it for a high feeling didn't want anybody to evaluate their lifestyle. But again, I really have a lot of respect for Chuck because he was willing to stand out there on the beach and give out the word and say, hey, God loves you guys. And I know you're looking for a trip. Let me tell you who the real Jesus is, you know, and then he would give the gospel out to him and they'd find the Lord through that. I mean, the story of Calvary Chapel, and I'll put a, a link to it in the show notes. When I was wanting to start a study here in Orlando, where I live, I wanted to do a Calvary Chapel thing. I've listened to Calvary Chapel stuff for years. And Bob Coy, who is the uh, the pastor down at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, has just been a huge influence in my life. Bob and I have similar backgrounds in some respects, and I love the guy's teaching. And when I listened to him more, got into looking at Chuck and started listening to Chuck and actually had the pleasure of uh, one year when we were out at CSUN, I actually went with my son Michael to Santa Ana and were able to meet with Pastor Chuck and oh, yeah. took a picture and listened to him preach. And, and you know, it was great to know, I mean, the years and how much compassion and how much love he had for people that, I mean, when you walk into a church, man, with long hair, maybe barefoot, you know, whatever, and you're just being you, you know, you're just being you. And Jesus is a come-as-you-are party. I tell people Jesus cleans his fish after he catches them. You know, so just come as you are. If you're dirty, that's okay. You're a sinner, that's okay. You just bring it all to Jesus. Say, Jesus, here I am, and it's your job. And Jesus takes responsibility for it. He says, it's me. You know, it's all about me. And uh, so I, I really do... Love that. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. So you're with your girlfriend. When did you decide to get married and how did you get into church? And, you know, and, and you had kids. What did you do before you came to Big Trees Church? Well, we were in, what, 1967, 68, somewhere right, right in there. And of course, she's the girlfriend, etc. We probably, after about a year or a year and a half of, of our courtship, we kind of knew that we were going to be married. We figured, hey, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And I knew she was 
the one I want to do life with. And uh, so we got married at the end of college. I wanted to wait till I finished college so that, you know, I could work. And she was a dental assistant, so she worked and I worked. And actually, we got married and I worked at IBM for two years making computers. I wanted to be a history teacher, but by the time I got out of college, I kind of didn't want to do what I had prepared to do. And uh, that seems to be pretty common. Computers? And way back then? I was a computer assembler for a tiny little part of a computer that took up a whole room. It was one of these big mainframe computers back in the 60s. And I put together little uh, meter cards, and AC boxes and DC boxes and things called actuators. And they had solenoids in them and big clunky wires and clunky parts. And Wow. The only fun part about that whole business was I got to use an air gun so I could drive the screws down into the terminal blocks and go, with the air gun, and that was kind of fun. <laughs> but while that was going on, we were still doing ministry as volunteers with Youth for Christ and with the church that we were part of. In that whole two-year period, we spent lots of time teaching and singing and doing all kinds of stuff. And the kids would come over to our house, and they'd bake cookies, and we'd do recorded radio productions. We would do all kinds of dramas and fun things with my cheap little reel-to-reel recorders that I had back then. And I just felt more and more and more that God was saying to me, you know, I want you to do full-time what you're doing part-time and stop doing full-time altogether. And uh, so I thought, well, okay, how do we do this? Well, there was a church nearby that had kind of an intern program, which means you could meet with them and they would take about a two-year period and teach you about how to study the Bible and what the Bible teaches about God and how to do ministry and just a whole lot of stuff. And so I applied there and they were pretty full of people. And somebody said, well, why don't you try applying at uh, Multnomah Bible College? And so I wrote up there and here's who I am. And this is my testimony. And um, I'm interested in doing ministry as a pastor. Nobody ever wrote back or said anything like, well, you sure you can do this? Or how are you going to do this? Because you can't see all the books are in print, blah, blah, blah. I never got any of that. I was just absolutely floored. They wrote back wow. and said, we'd love to have you come. So after two years of marriage, no children yet, we loaded all our stuff into a U-Haul and it was behind our, well, it was just a little trailer kind of a thing, behind our car. And Lori drove us all the way up to Portland, Oregon from San Jose, California. That's about a 12, 13 hour trip. I don't know how many miles, but it's a long way. And God did a whole bunch of miracles for us because Lori was going to do her dental assisting work and get her PhD degree, which is put hubby through. So... She told the dentist, you know, we're going to be here for this amount of time and I need to earn this much money in order to support the two of us and my husband's in Bible college and all that. And she found a guy who hired her and she worked and she read a bunch of books for me. My mother read a bunch of books for me. They were on reels, seven inch reels at one and seven eighths inches per second, four track. So you have side 1A, side 2A, then you flip the reel and go to what's like the NLS cassettes used to be. So in my office, I've got all these reels of textbooks from uh, Bible college. So while I was there, we did that and we uh, worked with some ministry while we were studying. So it's not only learning, but it's doing. And uh, in 1972, our first boy was born and uh, we uh, finished Bible college. And then I had to apply to churches to do ministry. And that was a scary, scary thing because I had my degree, I had the qualifications, I did fairly well, and uh, you write to a church and you say, well, okay, it's who I am. And we got a lot of rejection letters. We had one interview at one church in Moses Lake, Washington, and the pastor didn't want me to come because I couldn't drive the bus, which was really <laughs> stupid because all kinds yeah. of other people could drive the blinking bus. I said, well, I want to make disciples and 
tell people about Jesus and do work in ministry. I mean, can't you? Get yeah, but you can't drive the bus. You can't drive. So <laughs> they wouldn't. <laughs> they wouldn't let me come. But there was a church in Edmonds, Washington, which is near Seattle, and uh, they said, "Hey, yeah, we want you." So um, we moved to Edmonds, Washington, from Portland, Oregon, and we're there for two years working with high school kids and junior high kids. We lived in a little house there, and our second child, our daughter, was born. 1974. And so the teenagers, of course, were thrilled because the new youth pastor and his wife had these two little kids and the girls especially. Due to some things that were happening in the church, they changed pastors and the pastor that was there who came second really kind of wanted to make a bunch of changes. And uh, the church decided that we should not be there anymore, basically. Their message was good, but they were wanting to make a lot of changes and kind of amp up the ministry. And uh, they felt like... uh, we didn't fit. Sure. So there we were in 1974, and we had the two kids and no job. And uh, we went back down to San Jose and lived with my mom and dad for about three months, which was an uh, interesting experience all by itself. With I'm our, sure. Yes, with our two kids, you know. And then actually our home church that I had been ministering in with Lori before we got married needed a youth pastor, and they said, hey, why don't you come and work with us? So that began a 10-year great time of ministry, doing high school work and college work. Then a bunch of them got married, so they wanted to start a new marriage class. So we taught young couples, and uh, just all kinds of interesting things happened. And during that point, we had two more kiddos. So talk to me about that, because you guys are busy having kids, <laughs> right? And of course, and now I'm sure you feel so proud. You got six beautiful grandkids as well, from five kids. What was it like growing up, uh, I guess, because, I mean, you grew up with your high school sweetheart. You got married to her. she never been with a blind guy. Is there any particular challenge or anything that we'd all like to think that everything just kind of worked, but was it always like that, or did things just work, or how did you guys deal with challenges of, can you do this, can't you do that, or were you guys young enough to where it just kind of didn't matter, because when you're younger, people don't put limitations on people. Yeah, You know, when we began dating and, and all of that, we really didn't think about those aspects very much because I was living with my mom and dad until the last year of college in which time I moved out to an apartment and had three other roommates. And that was a fabulous year, man. I learned how to do all kinds of stuff there, but she didn't really worry about it much. I know her mom and dad's only concern was, is he going to be able to earn a living? But I don't think they had a problem with who I was as a person. It was more, you know, is he going to actually be able to support a family or Which, what? In, in their, you know, when when you think about that, I mean, that's a fair question. It is a fair if they question. they didn't know. You bet. Yeah, it's a fair absolutely. question. Was it based on blindness or was it just based on, you know, here's this guy that wants to date my daughter? It was based partly on the blindness, I think. And I was on a good track as far as wanting to be a history teacher and all that stuff. So her folks kind of felt like, okay, he's not a deadbeat. He's on a good sure. uh, pattern here. But we were just young and and in love, and we didn't really worry much about all that, you know. And then once we got married, we were both working. So, you know, again, I was able to do the job that I was hired to do and all of that. You know, how about when the kids came and, you know, splitting tasks and changing diapers mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, and feeding babies and staying up in the middle of the night with them when they're sick and, you know, all the things that parents do that folks sometimes just take for granted. What skills did you learn? How did that work for you? We were both kind of learners together. 
because of course mm-hmm. you know we hadn't had any any children before that sure. so you kind of learn as you go I, th- I think one of the first things was it was during that era when it was okay or cool for the husband to be there when the babies were born mm-hmm. and so we actually told some people well we're going to do that we're going to go through the birth classes and learn how to do all this stuff and do the breathing and Wasn't that fun? <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah that and was fun, uh, man. some people said why do you want to bother with that and i said hey man we're in this thing together we're a couple and the Lord Jesus is the center of our relationship and stuff. So he's going to be there with us. It's all going to be cool. So, yeah, when each of the babies was born, man, I was right there with her and stuff. And I think that that's pretty much kind of how it worked out as they began to grow and things. Then we would both work on different parts of caring for them. You just learn to take care of them. And then they start crawling around. And maybe I think for me, one of the challenges was not stepping on anybody <laughs> me crawling <laughs> you put, around you put bells on them man yes <laughs> and there were some times where they would say don't step on me daddy because they'd be yeah. in the middle of the floor with the legos or the blocks or whatever it was you ever kneeled on a lego you go to pray with your kids at oh, night yeah. you kneel oh, on one of those I've babies ow nasty yes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh so, so are, are any of them in ministry today did any of them follow in daddy's footsteps and uh yeah actually to ministry our youngest daughter who's 24 is working with InterVarsity christian fellowship at San Francisco State University and she's full-time staff there and they're basically sharing the gospel with college students and she lives in San Francisco and uh, oh gosh they have all kinds of outreach things that they do and they feed the homeless that so they go to various areas and do lots of different ministries and, and also disciple college students and they do things for the university as a group of people representing Jesus Christ kind of as a testimony so yeah she does Two of our others are are working full-time, but they are involved in their local churches in volunteer stuff. And then we have two who are kind of off track at the moment, which, uh, you know, breaks our heart, but we're waiting on the Lord for their hearts to turn direction. They teach them when they're young, man, and when yeah. they're old, they'll, you know, they'll come back. They, yeah. they always do. Yeah, and that's what we're praying for. So here we are, you're doing ministry. So many of us are used to having our screen readers and our note takers and our iPhones and this and that. And you did all of this stuff in an era where, well, first of all, you didn't have this stuff, but then you had to transition into it later. Give us a couple minutes on how did you do stuff BC before computers and then AD after desktops, you know, uh, you know, what do you do today? Yeah, that's a great question because, uh, I haven't yet gotten over the wonder of the change. When I started in 1972 teaching high school kids and moved right on through the 70s and early 80s, I had the Perkins Braille Writer to write my notes, and I had the King James Braille Bible, 18 Braille volumes. All my classes that I went to in Bible college, I had recorded on reel-to-reel tapes so I could use those for reference. But that's about all I had other than just my training and how to study the Bible and all that kind of thing. I go back, though, to what I said earlier in the Second Corinthians thing. I had the Spirit of God, and God was my adequacy. I have been amazed ever since I started this thing, and I guess that's 40 years ago or 41 years ago now, that without all of the sophisticated stuff that was around for sighted people back then, which I didn't have access to, I would study a passage of Scripture, and the Spirit would give me insights into that passage that I would never have seen without his ministry and without using a commentary or anything else they were just there and when i had access to a commentary or when somebody was around who would read me a commentary then i would you know sometimes check in and say okay well you know does this thing 
get the same thing out of the passage that I'm getting. And the ones that used really good, solid Bible study methods in terms of how to interpret the scripture, most of the time I was pretty much there. Once in a while, they'd read me the commentary and I go, where did they get that? You know, and sometimes I would have the colossal guts to say, well, I appreciate he's Dr. Husitz, but I don't agree with him. I'm going to teach what God gave me. So, um, but it was, it was just your 18 volumes, King James Bible. In 1984, the college kids purchased for me a revised standard Braille Bible. So now I had two, but that was all I had. And I'm actually a very late comer to the computer world. It wasn't until 1998 that a man came to meet with our church and became part of our fellowship who came in talk. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm studying the word. And I had my King James Bible and my Perkins Braille right and that was it. And he says, well, what about a computer and all that? And I said, well, I don't know anything much about that stuff, you know, and it's very expensive. I didn't know any other blind people, and I didn't know anything about note takers. I didn't know anything about Braille and Speak, and I didn't know anything about DOS or any of that stuff. I mean, I was just completely out of the loop up here in the mountains. You know, you're, there's nobody else around much. So he said, you know, we need to work on this. And so he started doing some research, and he found a screen reader, which was a JAWS for Windows, and there was this little demo CD that you could get, which would let you run the thing until the expiration date. And he said, I'm going to get this thing. We're going to just set up with a computer. And I'll never forget the first time I I heard eloquence, you know, say, JAWS for Windows is ready for screen sensitive help plus F1 or whatever it was, insert F1 or whatever. And I was absolutely freaked. I uh, just about cried. Lori could tell you that, <laughs> that it was just this. And I said, I have a computer and I can actually do this. And I had to learn keys because all I'd learned how to do was type on a typewriter. So I knew how to do, you know, the home keys and the the other typing keys, but there were all these funny keys on the computer. So somebody had to tell me, you know, what they were. And just little bit by little bit, I began to try to make a transition. So how can I use this for preparing a sermon? And so if you get into a word processor, you can write out your notes. You can access the Bible on your computer. You can paste your verses into your notes. Not only that, but if you make a mistake and you don't like what you wrote, you can get it out of there and you can put in what you want. Instead of what I used to do is have maybe eight pages of sermon notes and I wanted to stick something in the middle that I had forgotten to put in. And so I'd have page one, page two, page 2A, page 2B, <laughs> yeah, and then page three, page four, page 4A, page 4B. You know, and it got really cumbersome. Sometimes I ended up actually losing my place, and I would have to say to everybody, hey, hold on, folks, I'll find it. So this was so sweet. And so that opened up, you know, the computer, the embosser. I had had a Kurzweil personal reader. I got it back in 79, I think it was. Lori's mom had died, and she left us enough money to buy the Kurzweil personal reader. I think it was 10000 bucks. Scared me to death to purchase that thing. I thought, here I have a family with five kids by this time. Can we afford to spend $10,000 just so the husband of the household, the dad of the household can read books? Is it worth it? And uh, everybody down to the littlest, well, the littlest child was only a year old, but next to the littlest said, oh, dad, we want you to read. And Lori said, oh, sweetie, yeah, if you can read, that'd be so sweet, you know. So I I would read with the Blinken personal reader. So... Since then, it's evolved into System Access and DocuScan Plus and all of all kinds of fun wow. things. But I never, I was telling Jamie tonight, I've never seen a note taker. 
I've never seen a Braille display. There are certain elements that I've never even seen because we don't live anywhere near where any of them are. So if I ever visit any of you guys, I'm going to say, okay, I really want to get to know you, but would you please show me all your toys? (laughs) So so let me ask you a question about about you you and Lori when it comes to communication. Because for me, I grew up, you know, I use computers for work starting in 89, but I never really got into email stuff until after 97. And when I found that I could write, that I could communicate, that I could share what was in my head and I could actually review it and correct it, you know, because when you're typing for school, it's just kind of a one-way process and you're hoping <laughs> that, yeah. you're, that you're doing it right. You yeah. know, and I've heard about blind people that write entire term papers and they're blank. Yes, I've been there. No ribbon yes, doesn't work in yes. a stupid typewriter. Oh my goodness. Right. So when I found I could write, it really brought my level of communication, not only with people, but with my wife. I mean, I could write her love letters, man. I could write things to her that no one else could see, you right. know, just her. Right. And to me, it's funny because I'm 45 years old, man. Until I was in my 30s, I couldn't write. Right. And print. So for me, it was an amazing thing. How, how did you guys, did you guys have little love notes or anything? Or I'm sure you email each other now and, right. and that kind of thing, don't you? Or? Yeah. Actually, what we did originally, and this is back in our courting days, I taught her mm-hmm. enough Braille to where I could write her Braille letters and she would write me back. She had a slate and stylus and she actually would write me back. That's love, dude. Yeah. That's yeah. love. You betcha. That's a key right there. Yeah. Yeah, and she would. And sometimes she got the dots wrong and some things came out kind of funny, but uh, it worked pretty well. And I'm really much more of a verbal communicator than I am a writer. So after we got married, I didn't have to write much because we were together all the time. So, John, it's been so awesome to talk to you. And the thing that I guess I love to hear about the events of your life, with all honesty, is that it's been uneventful. You've lived a pastor's life. And when I say uneventful, I don't mean that it's irrelevant. I'm just saying it's like there's nothing amazing there. You've just kind of lived your life and lived your life as God has led you to live it. And I hope that doesn't sound wrong. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> no, you're just it sounds fine. Average dude, you know? I really am. I am very vanilla. And I love that. Our church is full of just a bunch of ordinary people. They forget that I can't see most of the time. If there's something in the way or whatever in the middle of the sanctuary, they've left a table in the way or something like that. 90% of the time they forget to tell me or whatever. And I just bang into it. And usually they feel bad if that happens. And I go, hey, yeah, don't worry about it. just they didn't like your sermon. So yeah, they rearrange the furniture. Well, on they yeah. threaten that every once in a while. But actually, (laughs) they just forget. And I say, hey, that's the best compliment you could ever pay. The thing that you notice and the thing that you are aware of me is that Jesus lives through me and that I love him. And I'm here to serve you guys. I don't want my blindness to be the thing that you take note of first. So an ordinary guy has been able to write a letter on a lot of people's hearts. Yeah, God bless you. Oh man, and I, I love know you for when that. You get to heaven. I love you for that. How I, many? I can't wait for that day when God shows me all kinds of people that were touched that I don't even know about. That is well, John, cool. you have certainly just made my day, and, and it's been awesome talking to you. I, I know that many people are going to hear this and be blessed by the word of your testimony, by the normality of your life. I think that that's so, so many of us have had kind of crazy, turbulent lives, and. Others of us, uh, like yourself, you haven't had that. You've had a very, dare I say, normal life. 
and that's cool, man. So what's next for you? What are you, what are you, are you more of the same, just hanging out in the mountains, preaching the gospel or what are you doing? Well, you know, that's going to be pretty much a day-by-day thing as the Lord directs. Um, being almost 67, we're beginning to ask a question, does a pastor ever retire? And if he does, when does he do it? And uh, do you stay where you are and do volunteer stuff, or do you move somewhere else? And we're just going to have to wait on the Lord. I love that verse in Isaiah forty thirty one: They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary, walk and not faint. And so we're just you know, say, hey, Lord, we're waiting for you. We expect you to show us. I can't find anything in the Bible on retirement. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Thanks so much for the wonderful ministry that he's given you. We do want you to certainly come back and teach us some more and just share. And uh, anytime uh, the Lord uh, lays on your heart that you got a word to share, man, please, by all means, just let us know. You betcha, I will. We'll just drag you over here kicking and screaming and make you preach anyway. It sounds good, (laughs) man. And I appreciate you guys letting me come on and just share my heart with you and share the word of God with you guys. And uh, we'll uh, look forward to maybe another opportunity of doing that. Hey, Jamie, thanks for hanging out with us tonight too, man. And, um, you know, we're going to be back next week. Don't know what we're going to do next week, but we are going to be here. And if you'd like to visit us online, please do visit us at www.blindjesusfreak.com. Follow us on Twitter at blindjesusfreak or drop us an email at info at blindjesusfreak.com. Don't worry about it. If you didn't get any of that stuff, the guy with the better pipes than I have, the guy with the nicer voice is actually going to give you all that information in just a moment. Remember everybody, everybody's a freak of about something so be a freak about jesus see you next week thank you for checking out the blind jesus freak podcast with your host mike calvo a podcast that focuses on living a christ-centered life with a visual impairment even if you don't have a visual impairment and you made it this far we see you stuck around if you learn something we invite you to add us to your favorite podcasting software and make us a part of your regular biblical studies you might just be blessed by how the blind look at god's word yes the pun is totally in So stop being politically correct and let's just relate to one another as God's kids. For more information about this ministry, visit us on the web at www.blindjesusfreak.com and learn how easy it is for you to connect with us and a bunch of other Jesus freaks on your favorite social networks. Remember, everybody's a freak about something. Join us and be a freak about Jesus. After all, he's crazy about you.